Welcome to the first session of this series. And our series theme um, is Reclaiming Goodness, Truth, and Beauty. And so, yeah, as we were, were talking about different topics that we wanted to see, um, all the speakers that we started finding really had ways of addressing it's just these themes of truth, goodness, and beauty, and as they relate to our Catholic faith and to kind of issues we face in society. And so today's talk will be on reclaiming gender, and that I think this talk is really going to be very relevant to this theme. Um, and so our, our presenter is Dr. John Rice. Uh, he's a pediatrician who's been in practice for more than 30 years, which is so cool. Um, and he currently is at South Bend Clinic. Um, he's a Notre Dame grad. He received his bachelor's there, and then he went to complete his medical degree in residency at Indiana University School of Medicine. Um, he has presented on this topic of gender identity to Catholic schools in our diocese, um, and he is married and has seven kids and is uh, one of ten, you said? One of ten. So please help me welcome Dr. John Rice. Thank you. I, I hope you'll be clapping at the end of the uh, discussion as well. Um, it is a pleasure for me to be here. Uh, this is a wonderful group, and I'm especially pleased to be, at least for one night, counted among the young adults in the diocese. It's been a long time since I've uh, been in that group, but I appreciate it. And seeing young adults here really gives me the, the hope for the church. Some of the things we're going to be talking about um, that have happened with regard to marriage, the family, gender ideology, et cetera, are things that have uh, really taken the church and society in a very negative direction. And it's very uh, hopeful for me to see uh, so many young people who are interested in their faith, interested in joining together with other young people to, to build the faith, to build their families, and this really is going to build the, the future of the church. So thank you for coming here. Uh, thank you for, uh, for all you've done so far. And I uh, wish and pray the best for you as you continue to grow in your faith. As was already mentioned, uh, today's the Feast of St. Thomas Aquinas. And this is a particularly important uh, uh, juxtaposition, and, and God doesn't work in coincidences, so I think he had something to do with this. Uh, Thomas Aquinas is um, one of the preeminent theologians in the church, lived back in the 1200s. Um, which of us can hope to still be, be read and studied 800 years from now? Um, so Thomas really has a special role in the church. And one of the important things about Thomas is that he really illuminates the idea of truth. And he took uh, the philosophy of Aristotle and he fit it into the Christian uh, faith, the Catholic faith, and, and brought into the Catholic faith a very deep understanding of the concept of truth. Truth um, for Thomas is something that's independent of our perception of it. And that's important for what we're going to be talking about tonight, because that's really the, uh, the whole controversy in the gender identity issue is, which is preeminent, the perception of gender or the fact of how we're created? Thomas uh, would tell us that truth is something that can, can be known, that each of us can come through the light of reason uh, through our natural uh, intellect, can come to know the truth. Sin in our human state has darkened that intellect and left us uh, groping sometimes for, for what is the truth. And some of the, uh, uh, the situations that people find themselves in are, are because they have an imperfect understanding of the truth. Thomas also would tell us uh, that revelation and the magisterium are sure guides to the truth because God and his church cannot err. The church doesn't pronounce specifically on matters of science, but the church does have a very important voice when we talk about where science intersects with the human person. And it's up to the church 
and we'll see uh, later on how the church has responded and articulated some of these very important principles about who we are as human beings. And once you understand who we are, that determines what we can do and what the limits of what we can do are. So the church isn't trying to put limits on science because the church is trying to control science. The church is simply saying it is the church's uh, purview, it's the church's responsibility to guide us in matters of the human person and our relationship to God. So it is very proper and necessary that we speak about this tonight and speak um, in medical and theological and sociological terms um, because these are all particular dimensions of the human person, but it is important that we bring all those together because truth, after all, as Thomas again would tell us, is one. There's not scientific truth that would contradict uh, medical truth that would contradict political or sociological truth. All truth in the end is one. And in fact, all truth is not, a, not even a thing or an idea. It's a person. A person who 2,000 years ago said, I am the truth. So as we do this, as we, as we study this topic, as we study everything relating to our faith, we have to be confident that we know the truth, and we have access to the truth about ourselves and about how we're created. And we can't be shy about that because our society needs this. Our society desperately needs the vision um, that the church has for who we are and uh, how we ought to act. So tonight I'm going to uh, talk about some definitions, what what we mean when we talk about being transgender or when we have gender identity or other, some of those other terms that you've probably heard and you probably have some understanding of, but I want to make sure we're all talking about the same thing. So we'll talk about those. We'll talk about what it means to transition, to change gender, and, and some of the medical aspects of what's involved in that because it's a, uh, a pretty complicated uh, process that people are willing to go through. I want to make a couple of preliminary remarks. Um, this is a topic uh, that uh, in our society has uh, generated a great deal of uh, emotion, of anger, of sadness, of uh, other tremendously strong emotions, because this is something that uh, affects people very deeply. It affects the very core of who they are. It's very important that we realize that when we speak about these concepts, I'm speaking about the ideas and not the persons who hold them. So I may speak about the idea of being transgender as not compatible with the faith. However, I, I do not mean to demean the dignity of anybody who who holds that or who, in fact, is affected by that condition. So I, I want, from the very beginning, to extend um, a, a very warm welcome and uh, a deep compassion and understanding towards those who are uh, afflicted with this difficulty, with this gender confusion. And... Uh, I want to be very conciliatory toward those who hold that opinion or who teach it because I have to assume the best of intentions. As Thomas again would tell us, people can have the best of intentions and still be wrong. So because people are very sincere and hold something very strongly doesn't make that viewpoint more true or less true. Um, but we always have to recognize the dignity and the importance of the person, especially when people are suffering in this way. And this is a, a type of suffering. When people are suffering in this way, we're called to accompany them in their suffering. And there's no better accompaniment than to lead somebody to the truth of who they are. 
So we talked, uh, first of all, about biological sex. We open up Genesis, male and female, he created them. That seems to be a simple concept, and for nearly 2,000 years, there wasn't much question about it. There's male and there's female, one and one. There's two. Um, unfortunately, in the last 50 years, science and psychology and other fields have developed the notion that sex is not a binary concept, but rather a fluid concept, a continuum, where you can be 70% one, 30% the other, 50-50, or nothing at all, or one day you're one thing and one day you're another thing. Um, so it becomes much more difficult to nail down. Um, and it's, a, it's important to understand what people mean. So they'll use terms like gender fluid, which means I could be anything on any given day. They'll use terms like um, agender, which means I don't proclaim myself either male or female. Or they'll talk about uh, feeling transgender, which means I am biological uh, male, but I identify as a female or vice versa. One thing that uh, sometimes gets confused with this is the problem of intersex or ambiguous genitalia. This is a medical condition in which you know, probably one in four or 5,000 babies has a metabolic defect as everything's forming inside and uh, the genitalia don't form normally. So when you look at the baby at the, as the baby's born, you can't look and say immediately, this is obviously a boy, this is obviously a girl. In that case of ambiguity, uh, more medical investigations need to be made and the decision needs to be made about how to repair what has gone wrong in nature. That's not what we're talking about here. Those are certainly uh, cases that we can talk about and there have been some interesting uh, kind of natural experiments where people have been genetically one sex but raised the other. Um, but in the cases we're talking about of gender identity issues, the physical appearance is unambiguous. These people are absolutely clearly male or clearly female in their outward appearance. Uh, so there's nothing ambiguous about them. Um, and in fact, uh, they feel that they're trapped in the wrong body, but very definitely a male body or a female body. The other thing that we're not going to be directly addressing here is the issue of sexual attraction. So sometimes, because the acronym is LGBTQ, uh, I don't know what else uh, is added there, but um, because that acronym compresses all of those so-called sexual minorities, um, people often conflate being homosexual with transgenderism. Being homosexual or uh, having same-sex attraction is a, uh, is a condition of sexual attraction, but the person who is a male who's attracted sexually to other males knows he's a male and knows that this other person is a male and is attracted precisely for that reason rather than uh, being unsure of your own identity. Now there is a higher incidence within uh, the population of people who have gender identity also of sexual identity disorders. So very often those can occur together, but they're two separate disorders. They're not the same thing. So again, that's not our topic tonight. And I, uh, as I mentioned, both of these groups of people, I want to make, uh, make clear that um, it's important not to reduce somebody to their sexual preference or their sexual identity um, or to any other single aspect of them. To say somebody is a homosexual or is um, transgender 
reduces everything about that person to that one aspect. And it takes away from so much of the complexity and the completeness of who we are as human beings. So I would prefer uh, to use the terminology a person with same-sex attraction or a person uh, with gender identity uh, issues rather than saying this is a transsexual or a tr homosexual or something else that reduces the person. Um, it's, it's, a, it's very important for us to keep in mind that these are persons. When we talk about gender, as we come back to the idea of a person, what is a person? A person is a unity of body and soul. A person is not a soul that's just trapped in the body. The Christian anthropology uh, speaks of us as a body-soul unity. The uh, movement to, to separate the two, to allow, to allow us to speak of one gender trapped in the wrong body, really reduces the person to his non-physical attributes and, and says that the body is just a shell in which that person is trapped. And that's a, a very different way of looking at the person compared with uh, the Christian view. Gender itself, the term, is our awareness of our identity as males and females. So your biological sex is established from the moment you're conceived. It's evident on the ultrasound. It's evident at birth. It's evident uh, throughout your life. Gender is something that is subjective. It's a subjective concept in which we become aware of our masculinity or our femininity. Identity develops early in life. So I see uh, a couple of people with little kids and pretty soon those, those little ones are gonna say, am I a boy or a girl? And mom and dad are gonna say, of course, you're a boy and you're a girl. And, and that's how that identity is, uh, is built. Gender identity has to be distinguished from gender roles. The gender identity is what you, how you think of yourself. Then you have gender expression, which is how you present yourself to the world. If you see yourself as a young woman, then you dress in, you put dresses on, you put nail polish on, you, uh, you do girlish things so that you present yourself to the world as a young woman. Likewise, a young man would uh, present himself differently to the world to show that he uh, is a young man. So there's gender identity, gender expression, and then gender roles. The church doesn't say that only women can become teachers and nurses, and only men can become doctors and uh, truck drivers. Um, gender roles um, are gender roles may vary as long as whatever role we take is one that's uh, consistent with our identity and consistent with our vocation in life, our calling to live out that identity. Gender identity uh, as a pathology, as a, um, as a disorder, was listed in all the psychiatric manuals up until 2013 as gender identity disorder. And this made it a, uh, this defined it as a person who is one biological sex who perceives himself as the other. And it took the biological sex as a given and said that the, uh, the disorder was in the person's perception. And all the way up until 2013, that's how the psychological world viewed it. In the most recent edition of the DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical uh, Manual, which kind of lists the criteria for all the uh, psychological diagnoses, the... Uh, these two things were flipped. Now it's described as gender dysphoria, and the biological sex is seen as the problem, and the person's perception is seen as the truth. 
So gender dysphoria occurs when you realize you're one sex, you look at your body and you say, I'm in the wrong body and it bothers me. The dysphoria means I'm somehow affected by it. So the pathology is not the altered perception, rather the pathology is the distress caused by uh, what is held by science now as a true perception. When people say, uh, I have, uh, or I am, I am one sex, but I think, I think I'm the other gender, they'll speak of either being cisgender or transgender. If you remember your chemistry, uh, when two molecules were on the same side of the, uh, the compound, they're cis. When they're on opposite sides of the bond, they're trans. So if you're cisgendered, that means you line up symmetrically. So you're, you're a male in a male body. If you're transgendered, you believe you're a male in a female body or a female in a male body. How often does this happen? Um, it's hard to study topics like this uh, specifically, but the, the best estimates are that in the adult world, fewer than 1%, probably about half of 1% um, of people are truly uh, gender confused, whether you use the gender identity or gender dysphoria term, people who believe that they're in the wrong gender. So it's, a, it's an infrequent um, pathology that happens. It does tend to occur more often in childhood. The natural history, interestingly, in childhood is that between 70 and 90% of people will, or little children, will resolve their gender identity issues during childhood. So if you have a a three-year-old or a four-year-old who believes he's a girl or she's a boy, um, they may persist in that for a little while. They may act on it. Uh, but generally, um, that resolves on its own. So the, it's only a very small proportion of young children who will persist into older adolescence and adulthood. Those who persist or those who maintain that their gender uh, is different by the time they're in later adolescence or adulthood, those people most likely will continue to persist into adulthood with that belief. So what do people do when they, when they feel like they're uh, trapped in the wrong body? Well, sometimes they just have that feeling and they, they say, oh, well, well, they're, they just live, live their whole life believing that they're in the wrong body and don't do anything about it. The uh, current recommendations medically, and this has been a, a major shift within all the medical bodies within the last 10 to 20 years, the current recommendations now are rather than... Uh, support the person in discovering their true identity. It's the current recommendation is to affirm the person's stated identity and to assist them in what other way uh, they need in, uh, in transitioning. So that would take a, uh, a young child who says, uh, I look like a boy, but I think I'm a girl. And the parents would be told, run with that. Uh, help him become a girl. And that, uh, when you look at those studies now, uh, it's an interesting experiment we're running without, a, without informed consent, without controls, because when children are assisted to transition, both socially and then medically, almost all of them will continue to transition. So you take this group of people that had a very high rate of resolution, and by encouraging them in their, uh, their thoughts about uh, their gender difference, uh, they end up going down that road of, of transitioning. And some of the steps of transitioning are 
uh, difficult or impossible to reverse. So when we talk about transitioning, we'll talk about several stages. The first is social transition, where that child who thinks he's a girl tells everybody in the family, uh, don't call me Johnny anymore, call me Susie. I want to wear a dress, and then begins to do the same thing on the outside. I want to go to school uh, wearing a girl's uniform and not the boy's uniform. I want to uh, play on the girl's basketball team, not the boy's basketball team. Um, I want uh, people to refer to me as her instead of him. And all of this is uh, contained in that phrase, social transitioning. And this is what uh, has led to a lot of uh, social upheaval when we talk about bathroom laws. Can this child who is anatomically and in every other way male, but believes himself to be a female, can he dress in the girl's locker room? Can he shower in the girl's locker room? Um, the, uh, the legal system would say, yes, he has that right, but the, uh, the parents of all the other girls in there would say, uh, that's a problem. We'll, we'll talk a little bit more about the social implications later. But social transitioning, while it seems like it's a completely reversible step, because next summer, Johnny could come back to school and say, I'm, I'm Johnny again. I'm all better. That was just a stage. But the damage has been done, um, because forever he'll be known as the boy who was a girl for a year. Forever, uh, and this will live forever on uh, social media and on the internet, when he's interviewing for a job 30 years from now, somebody will find that. So it, it's not a completely reversible thing. It also takes him away from uh, some of the normal developmental jobs he should have done. If an eight-year-old boy should be playing with other boys, learning what boys do, learning how to be a young man, and instead he's been modeling himself as a young woman, he's missed some of that development that he should have had. So it's not completely reversible, um, and it, uh, it tends uh, to lead, if you, if you encourage that uh, social transition, it tends to lead to the next step, which would be requesting medical help to, uh, to make bodily changes. Remember, this nine-year-old is prepubertal, and if you dress him in the right clothes and style the hair the right way, um, he could look a lot like a boy or a girl. Things are going to happen in a few years. They're going to make it very difficult for a 13-year-old boy or a 13-year-old girl to present himself or herself as the opposite sex. And if you're a, a girl and you think you're a boy and you start looking more and more like a young woman, that causes a great deal of, of distress, and that's real. That's a, that's a real uh, distress. And yet the medical world now would fix that by saying, okay, we'll, we'll stop those changes. We'll take that normal developmental process, that pubertal development, which is a normal bodily function, and we'll stop it. And if, if that's not enough, we'll stand it on its head and instead of letting you develop in the direction your body intended to develop, we'll force the body to develop in the opposite direction. So the first stage that you hear about is called puberty blockade, which sounds, again, sounds innocuous because it's kind of a time out. It takes the, it takes the child out of, uh, out of the whole pubertal process. There are some medical risks to that, um, and we can talk about those uh, later on, but it's not a, not a benign process. It's also one of the few situations in medicine where we take a normal body process, something that's working in a very healthy way, and we stop it. We treat it as a pathology, not as a normal process in the body. And it also makes it harder to, uh, to go back to what you were. Um, imagine the 10-year-old the who decides, I want to stop this whole pubertal process, 
and four years later, um, where, where have all his or her peers gone? They've all gone through puberty. They're all bigger, taller, stronger. Uh, they've, they look like young men. They look like young women. And here's this little kid who still looks like a fourth grader. Um, doesn't that increase the sense of isolation, the sense of being different, the sense of somehow not belonging, and um, can easily add to that child's psychological uh, stressors? Puberty blockade is only a temporary thing. There are some questions about whether, whether stopping that process uh, also stops some of the normal psychological development, some of the brain development. And again, we can go into the uh, scientific aspects at some other point. But it's, a, um, it's, it's only a temporary thing because at some point you have to decide, are you going to stop the blocking hormones and let normal puberty take place? in which case you take on the appearance that nature intended you to, to have, or do you affirm the gender transition? That is, do you uh, start giving this person what they would call cross-gender hormones or gender-affirming hormones? And usually this is started by about 16 years of age, by the time you would have finished puberty. Um, sometimes it's uh, it's been proposed now to, to start it earlier, to start giving these cross-sex hormones at a younger age. Um, and, and that would mean for a genetic male to give him high doses of estrogen to basically stimulate all the female development and make him look like a female. Likewise, a genetic female would be given high doses of testosterone. They may also continue the blocking hormones so that the, the normal testosterone production in the male is suppressed, the normal estrogen uh, production in the female would be suppressed. Um, these, these changes are not always reversible. Some of the changes that take place, uh, breast growth, etc., even if you change your mind a year, five years, ten years later, um, those changes are irreversible. The, um, one of the changes that, that takes place is as you start giving cross-gender hormones, you permanently affect fertility. You, uh, if somebody is a female and you start giving cross-gender hormones, you can permanently affect their ability to act reproductively as a female and they never will be able to reproduce as a male because they don't have uh, the male organs inside. So when you transition medically, you're making a big decision about fertility. Now remember, puberty starts these days as early as eight or nine years of age in girls, 10 or 12 in boys. So you're asking young kids who have a hard time deciding what color socks to wear, whether they want to be mothers and fathers the rest of their lives, whether they're going to be a boy or a girl the rest of their lives. Um, and medicine uh, right now just says, listen to the child and do whatever they want. So it, uh, it becomes, uh, you're laying some very big decisions on the child or the parents are making big decisions for the child. The final step in transition is surgical where you take those unwanted body parts and you chop them off. And you try to take whatever tissue is there and you fashion it into body parts that make you look a little more like uh, the sex you want it to be. These new, newly created body parts are never going to be fully functional. They certainly don't make you in every other way the male or female that you want to be but they may uh, make you look somewhat like what you, uh, what you wanted to be. In that, uh, in that surgical area, there's certainly the surgical risks, anesthesia, infection, bleeding. Um, there's the risk of a uh, poor outcome uh, where you might look much more 
uh, surgically damaged that you ever, than you ever thought you would be. And looking like the, the opposite sex doesn't make you the opposite sex. It just makes you somebody who wants to look like that sex. One of the uh, things to realize is that there is a very high rate of mental health disorders in the uh, population of people with gender issues. Um, it's difficult to tell when you study this how much of the mental health um, is because of the gender issues, how much is pre-existing, and the, uh, the gender movement would say all of these mental health issues are caused by uh, the stigma and the discrimination that society imposes on these people. It doesn't seem to be true because if you look at studies in countries that are very accepting, in the Netherlands and Sweden, where sexual minorities of all uh, types are, uh, are very openly accepted, there still uh, is a very high incidence of suicide, of depression, of anxiety, of uh, eating disorders, and other mental health disorders, even in people who have successfully transitioned. We also know that um, uh, even in, in this country that there are uh, there is a higher incidence of gender confusion in people who have autism. Now, it doesn't mean uh, necessarily that one causes the other, but it may stand to reason that if you have a, uh, a cognitive disorder, uh, an emotional disorder that impairs your relationships with others, it's reasonable to think that you may also have an impaired relationship with yourself and may have difficulty relating to your own gender in that way. There is a higher correlation with family dysfunction, with certain parenting styles, um, with uh, uh, family breakups in the population of people who have gender dysfunction. How much of this is caused by the child who has gender problems? Uh, again, there may be a bi-directional effect um, but it may also be that the child who is growing up in a, a dysfunctional family, struggling to identify with one or another parent, struggling to figure out where he fits in this family, in society, um, may begin to question the very core of, of who he is. In our society, um, you have not only this medical movement, and if you refer a child to most physicians, uh, they'll, most physicians won't see transgender people. You just, there just aren't that many out there. So most physicians may say, I only have one, or I saw one a couple of years ago. It's not something that walks in the door every day. So most physicians won't feel comfortable managing this by themselves. They'll refer it to a specialty clinic. And, and most of the specialty clinics are going to be very strongly biased, because that's the current recommendation, strongly biased towards affirming and promoting the perceived gender identity. Um, in addition to the, the medical movement, which pushes us towards affirming gender identity, we also have a number of legal initiatives, the anti-discrimination laws um, now begin to insert sexual identity or gender identity as protected classes. And as those get enshrined into law, then the legal principle will be that these, are, these differences exist in law. The Catholic bishops uh, in this country have uh, filed um, statements that, that say we can't, even though we should not discriminate unjustly against anybody who is suffering from any of these uh, sexual identity or sexual attraction disorders, we can't put these principles into law that, um, especially that gender identity truly exists because it speaks against the, the very uh, core of who we are as humans. To say that those two things identity and 
the body are separate is a false way of looking at, at people. So what does, uh, and uh, everywhere you go in culture, you look on the media, you look at, at ads, on the TV, on the internet, more and more uh, people are popping up um, uh, as um, gender or transgender or um, talking about gender transition, and it's becoming a more and more normalized part of our, uh, our culture. And this is going to be a difficult trend to turn around. It's even becoming normalized within the school setting. It's not uncommon if you look at an anti-bullying uh, curriculum and bullying ought not to happen and we ought to protect people who are being uh, bullied. And yet they'll slide easily into that curriculum the ideas that uh, people are different because sometimes they're boys who find out that they're girls so it's possible for boys to become girls or girls to become boys. Um, and that families can have all sorts of uh, structures. So as they're, as they're speaking about the, the very laudable prevention of bullying, they're also inserting the idea into very young minds that all these variations are, are normal and good. And that's something as a, as a church, as a culture, that we have to fight against, that we have to be able to bring that uh, true anthropology back that says human beings are created by God as a body and soul unit and that the uh, you, can't, you cannot separate those that your gender, your identity is something you perceive but the objective fact of how God made you is something that's a given and you can't change that even no matter what your perception is, you cannot change the, the fact of how God created you. And that God created you that way, not on a whim, not by accident, but with a purpose. And that's something a lot of young people these days no longer feel like they have a purpose. They no longer feel like their identity is rooted in anything. And if you even take away the fact that they were created as a male and a female and they're destined to, to fulfill God's plan as a male or female, if you take that away too, that leaves them almost completely unmoored. So the church speaks of, of God as the creator, male and female, he created them. In, in his image, they were created. And what does St. John tell us about God? God's image, God is love. So by creating us as male and female, as John Paul would speak about in the theology of the body, God was expressing the fact that we're made to image him in love and that the bodily image of a male and female coming together in that life-giving embrace is truly the image of the Trinity and truly a, a way that that we most perfectly image God. Man must accept the identity that God has given him. And this is something that the, uh, the Catechism of the Church, I can uh, just read a few excerpts. I'm not going to read the whole Catechism to you, but um, I, I encourage you to do that someday. It's a, it's a beautiful gift uh, to the Church. But in 2333, uh, we read, everyone, man and woman, should acknowledge and accept his sexual identity. Physical, moral, and spiritual difference and complementarity are oriented toward the goods of marriage and the flourishing of family life. The harmony of the couple in the society depends in part on the way in which the complementarity needs and mutual support between the sexes are lived out. And later on, by creating man and woman, God gives personal dignity equally to the one and the other. Each of them, man and woman, should acknowledge and accept his sexual identity. And the human body shares in the dignity of the image of, the, of God. It is a human body 
precisely because it is animated by a spiritual soul and it is the whole human person that is intended to become in the body of Christ a temple of the Spirit. And, and I could go on in, in that vein, um, but that's a, uh, the, the church is very clear that uh, body and soul occur together and they, they, come to, they are given us together for a reason. And there's a plan that we have to perceive and to live with, but we cannot alter that plan. Pope Francis speaks uh, in Laudato Si of, of ecology, and a lot of it was uh, the natural ecology, but he talked about human ecology. And he talked about the relationship uh, between man and nature. And he says that the acceptance of our bodies as God's gift is vital for welcoming and accepting the entire world as a gift from the Father and our common home. Whereas thinking that we enjoy absolute power over our own bodies turns often subtly into thinking that we enjoy absolute power over creation. So we come down to really the, the basic question, who is God? Are we God that we get to create ourselves, or do we respect God in his creation, and do we uh, accept the created realities that he has given us and discern his plan and uh, have the humility to follow it? Um, so where do we go from here? As a, as a society, um, some of these changes didn't occur in a vacuum. It, transgenderism didn't just drop out of the sky suddenly uh, in 2010 and suddenly become a thing without the groundwork being prepared many years before. And this is something that uh, is important for us to realize because if we fight just this battle, we're gonna, we're gonna lose because we're surrendering so much of the principle. And it's important for us to look at the entire picture of God's plan for the human race, God's plan uh, for the family, God's plan for man and woman, and build that in an integral whole and try to re reform society around that plan. So I'm going to stop for a moment because that's a, uh, a good lead-in um, the discussion questions uh, that you have on your table um, speak of different ways that we will present both this, uh, that will bring, bring this topic into society and how society already is confronting us as a church and a, uh, and a culture with these issues and to decide how do we practically approach this but also on a deeper level, how do we uh, reclaim the idea of gender and reclaim creation for God who is and ought to be the creator? You talked a little bit about dysphoria, and, and I think that the common justification is, you know, like, like I, I'm born in a man's body but identify as a woman. And it's, it's fascinating hearing it from a medical professional. And... Um, my wife and I have a colleague who he's a microbiologist and told us about a phenomenon. And, and again, you always said this is like 1% or less. Mm -hmm. And so there's a phenomenon in medicine called, I think it's microchimerism, okay. where for, uh, tw twins in somewhere in the, in the development, like embryonic stage or whatnot, wind up fusing um, you know, into one organism. And so I was curious of your thoughts as, as a physician, if, if that might contribute to dysphoria, like could, could you know... And, and if so, like, how would you approach uh, a patient from in that condition? I don't think there are any studies that would look at that. So it's, it's all theoretical at this point. Um, so what you're asking is, if somebody is XX, that is female, in 95% of their cells and 5% of their cells are male, what does that mean for them? Um, to be honest, I don't know, and, and certainly the church has not defined anything. Uh, 
we do have to look to science to help us solve some of those questions of, of what, what makes biological identity. Um, it doesn't, science can't tell us what makes a person, but science can tell us uh, what makes somebody a biological male. Um, I would uh, suspect that uh, one way to look at that is that the exception may prove the rule. That if you have uh, an occasional episode where nature goes awry and you have uh, uh, some sort of uh, mixture of cells in the body, that that, uh, that proves the, uh, the fact that all the rest of the time it happens normally. Um, there is some research that, that shows that when a mother is carrying a baby, some of those fetal cells may get into the mother's body, crossing the placenta, and may actually live there and, and propagate. Very, very small percentage, but does that make the mother who was carrying a male child a male all of a sudden? Um, in her totality, she's still a female, even if some of the cells that happen to be living somewhere in her body happen to have a Y chromosome. That's a, it's an interesting question, and, uh, and that's where the, the church does listen to science and looks at the, the intersection of science, but we have to come at it uh, understanding what the truth is and be able to apply the principles of truth to these particular situations. Uh, just, I mean, I'm still trying to navigate the whole discussion to begin with, but it's, it's it's a big topic, and I, I appreciate that, and and it shows your thinking. So um, thank you. So, do you find when you typically engage this topic that people um, that it is important for people to go through a physical transformation in order to be considered transgender, or is that just merely a a mental thing? So you're talking about a person who who has issues with gender. So in order to be transgender, do they have to be fully go through the four different stages no. of transition? Okay. No. So you can speak of somebody as transgender. And in fact, uh, many of the people in society who consider themselves transgender have done nothing more than social transition and, and haven't gone through any of the hormonal stages. Um, it makes it difficult to be, uh, to think that you are one sex and to have a body that looks very much like the opposite sex. Um, and that adds to their, uh, their uh, struggle inside. Uh, and this is a very real struggle. Uh, make no question about it. Um, there's no, we shouldn't belittle this. We shouldn't uh, diminish the importance of how, how fundamental a struggle this is and how as fellow human beings, and certainly followers of Christ, we should have the greatest compassion and walk with these people, um, but to, to treat them with the truth, to treat them, uh, to bring them the truth, because that's the highest form of charity, is to bring somebody the truth, and to help them uh, discover the truth about themselves, to give them the, the love and support they need as they journey along that way, because in some ways we're all wounded. Not necessarily in this particular way, but each of us has been wounded in some way, and we all need to accompany each other on that journey uh, uh, towards our final purpose. Uh, thank you for saying uh, just now, truth being the highest form of charity. Um, how, can, um, how can we... I guess um, battle um, the what, what we're calling the transgender agenda um, in a mostly cloud-based um, internet environment that specifically places limitations on um, the exposure to certain issues. So, for instance, um, in the second question, you talk about you know what would happen if um, the church or religious organizations were required by the federal government to comply with something that we find untruthful and unjust. Um, well, the answer would be you know like it would be 
mass communication um, calling attention to the issue because it's happened before where someone like um, you know Dr. Jordan Peterson uh, in, in mm -hmm. Canada was um, you know there was a compelled speech law and he you know, chose that hill to die on basically um, and enough attention was called to his issue that to that issue that you know, like he still has his job, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. the, and then, mm -hmm. you know, and now it's a, a bigger conversation is happening. But, you know, there are, you know, if the gatekeepers of information, for instance, have an agenda, like if you go on Wikipedia and look up transgender woman, it will say a transgender woman is a woman in a, you know, who was born in a man's body, right. Um, right. which is not the truth. Um, so um, how do you navigate that battlefield? In the short term, it's going to be difficult because uh, the, the other side controls many of the sources of information and controls the flow of information. Um, I think uh, being creative about using the, the new media, the new evangelization to, uh, to reach out to society is important. And I think um, you really have to look at the larger picture uh, we can mount a campaign and uh, present one particular issue, um, but I think if you're really looking at changing society, it's got to start in the heart. It starts with each one of us, and it starts with building a, a deep conversion within society. That's not going to happen overnight, and the Internet tends to like things that happen in 10 minutes or less. How many likes can you get in a short period of time? And yet... The, the best change is one that's going to be enduring, and it starts in our own hearts. It starts with our acknowledgement of God as creator, and if we acknowledge God as creator, one of the questions I ask really should make you think, if God truly is the creator of everything, and if God truly has a plan for everything he created, then every time I choose something other than God's plan, I'm choosing against my own happiness and I'm choosing against the happiness of those around me. So it's, it's something that should stop and make us pause um, in the bigger issue. And then you, then you have to say, how in my everyday life, how in my uh, dealings with the world, how do I show people that God is my creator and I really truly believe it and I'm gonna live that way? The, the church kind of dropped the ball 50 years ago or more when some of these movements were just beginning, long before people even knew what a transgender was, they used to call them transsexual, uh, and there were some very rare cases where people transitioned publicly back in the 50s and the 60s. Um, but we've, we failed when it came to other family issues because all of these family issues fit together. All these issues about why are we created? God created us to be in his image, and his image is love. He created us male and female because that image of love is most perfectly expressed in the, the marital embrace, in the family that that leads to, and uh, when that self-giving love permeates all of society. We gave that up. In the 1960s, when contraception was introduced, the church divided, and a large portion of Catholics, and even still, uh, as many Catholics as others in the population, still believe in and, and use contraceptives, which means they're accepting a false view of marriage, a false view of sexuality. And when we gave that up, when we separated procreation from from sex, and we separated it uh, and said that sex and marriage don't always have anything to do with each other. We, we gave up the, uh, we gave that unifying principle up. And then uh, we ended up with the abuse scandal in the church, which is not, um, it's not finished yet. It has damaged the, the church's credibility as, as the controversy over contraception did, now the abuse scandal has weakened the church's uh, appearance as a teacher, as a, as a moral leader. And yet, these are precisely the areas where we need to take the lead and to be able to, 
to say this is the truth to our society. Um, so I, I think the, um, the short-term answer is yes, you're all much better at the media and the internet than I ever will be. So there are people in here who will come up with solutions to disseminate the truth. But the, the truth isn't just something that shows up on a screen. The truth is something that has to be lived. The truth is a person who has to be discovered and related to, because the truth is Christ. So in the end, we have to, whatever we do with the media, whatever we do uh, in the legal realm and other realms, in the end, everything should be leading us toward Christ, because Christ is the answer. Christ is the unifying principle for all of this. Hi, Dr. Rice. Um, so with this definition being changed in 2013, mm -hmm. in your experience, what is the, how is the medical community reacting? Are they kind of going with like the social uh, trend? Or are yes, they... the, the, with very few exceptions, the medical community has sold out to the, the idea that uh, gender perception is the primary uh, aspect and bodily appearance is a, uh, an accident of nature. So yes, the, the medical profession, uh, there are really very few people within the medical profession who still hold or at least still publicly uh, teach the, the church's uh, view of the body-soul unity of the human person. Do they have any studies or proof to back up their stance that transitioning would be the best treatment for this? Or Most of the studies are short-term. Uh, yes, there are studies that say if a 12-year-old if a transitions when he's 14, he's less likely to be suicidal. Uh, yes, in the short-term, if you give, give kids what they want or give adults what they want, they feel better. Uh, that, uh, we all can see how that happens. We don't have the studies that go out 10, 20 years as these people continue to navigate through life. Um, we do know that there are people who uh, are what they call detransitioning, who are realizing after 10 or 20 years in a surgically mutilated body, uh, living uh, the opposite sex, that they realize they made a mistake. And they try to come back, but they realize that some of those steps are irreversible. Uh, and they certainly have lost many, many years of life uh, as God intended them to be. Um, we'll know more in the next 10 or 20 years as some of this becomes much more apparent. We've got a much larger group of people who are transitioning now. So that group of people who figure out it's not what, what they thought it was going to be will be much larger, unfortunately. Because these are people who are already suffering and will probably continue to suffer for many years. Dr. Royce, you mentioned sort of the, the long-term response being sort of a conversion of culture. Mm -hmm. um, and I just one of the things I love about being Catholic is I find that we often have a very rich response. And to my mind, um, like JP2's Theology of the Body, the war writings of Edith Stein are kind of already in the wings as the mm -hmm. church's kind of response to all of this. And I was wondering if you could comment on that or if there's any other things that you would add to that um, as, as sort of a, a kind of authentic Catholic response to these issues. I think, uh, I think those, that's a very good insight. And yes, uh, John Paul's theology of the body is a gift that I don't think we'll appreciate fully for another hundred years. That as we mine that gift and see the insights that he gave us, um, and there are going to be problems in society that will show up 10 years, 20, 50 years from now that are already being answered by, by what John Paul gave us. And it's our job just to apply that. So uh, I would encourage people here who haven't read the theology or studied the theology of the body to really learn that and, and live it. Um, I think just going back, and I threw a couple of other questions on there, just going back to the real basics, back to Christ. Look at Christ on the cross. The anthropology that, that he shows that, that as, as Christ, as the man, the God-man, that he gave himself totally for us, shows us the self-giving 
that we're also called to. That as he uh, was the father, or was the son, who fully cooperated with the father's plan, so also we, in our, our sonship, also should fully cooperate with the plan. Not my will, but thine. And, uh, and we look at Mary. Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Be it done unto me according to the word. Totally accepting of God's plan. Not proposing her own. Not saying, hey, wait a minute, I got a better idea. Or this is going to be hard. But total acceptance. And, and becoming, uh, not just looking at those as abstracts, but getting to know both Jesus and Mary as persons, as intimate friends. Because they'll walk with us. Um, both personally and as a society. So yes, very good insight. Thank you.